Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today we're going to look at an aspect of cyber attacks that I don't see discussed very often. We're going to talk about the infrastructure behind and underneath modern attacks that they depend on for success. And to do that, we have Renee Burton with us, who recently presented on the topic at the RSA conference in San Francisco. Now, Renee is the head of threat intelligence at Infoblox. She's been on the show before, and it's going to help us understand a little more about persistent threat infrastructures and the actors behind them, including some recent real world examples. So um, Renee, thank you for being back on the show. Great, thanks for having me, appreciate it. Now to start, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are just starting out in their cybersecurity career as well as the veterans. So I wanna get into some basics. Um, because persistent, I think when most security people think of it, they're thinking of advanced persistent threats, but now you're using it to talk about infrastructure. Can you explain that? Right. So the way that you know we are work on DNS, protective DNS, DNS data detection and response. So our focus is on um, how threats manifest themselves in DNS, which means how domains and IPs are related to each other through the global domain name system. Um, which is a uh, unbelievably large distributed database that you can't actually capture the whole database because of how it operates. And that gives not only the domain names and the IP addresses, but how they're related to each other. So that might be in the event of uh, being a name server or a C name, which is a canonical name record, which allows you to essentially redirect for, for lack of a better term, um, as well as uh, start of authority, which is essentially saying like, who belongs to this? How is it owned? And you, and you have um, different vectors or different features within those start of authority records as well. When we talk about DNS infrastructure actors, we're talking about um, an actor who controls the domains and IP space. Um, they can use shared infrastructure like cloud hosting providers and things like that, but they actually control how that is uh, operating and um, how the DNS itself is configured. Now we had uh, Chance Tudor from your team on not too long ago talking about uh, malvertising networks and I assume that mm -hmm. fits under this umbrella? Yeah, exactly. So in particular, malvertising networks uh, tend to be very persistent and long running. So when I use the word persistent here, uh, I mean that it has to have been in operation in our nomenclature has been in operation for at least a year. And typically the ones that we're tracking have been in operation for two or three years. Uh, again, they might move around, uh, they, they might you know change up different attributes, but they're still consistent over time and doing the same kind of operations. Uh, so in the Omnitor case, that actor has been in, I think about two years, if I recall correctly. And um, it's a typical case, Vextrio is another one, of the kind of malvertising actors that we are uh, watching today. Um, they're able to stand up and remain up uh, independent of other people um, detecting a one domain here or another domain there. That, that point alone is kind of scary because you know everybody's talking about zero day threats and zero day this and uh, you're looking at networks and your I mean, persistence aren't, aren't even zero year threats. These guys have been around for one or two or even three years. Um, but in your presentation, you talked about uh, phishing networks, in particular lookalike phishing. And when I think of phishing, I think of the, the, the botnets that are spamming all the email. Um, what's the breadth of what you encompass when you talk about a, like a lookalike phishing network? 
Um, so it can be very wide ranging. Uh, in particular, we have uh, some that we watch who are what I call dedicated lookalike actors. Um, there's one that uh, we've got in our paper on lookalike domains, and that we're we're going to write a short publication pre um, presently, very soon on that we call Open Tangle. Um, so Open Tangle is a really good example of an infrastructure actor who, again, has been around for a couple of years. I think. There have been uh, maybe three years at this point. They've been around for quite a while. And all they, sorry? Yeah, I'm looking at the notes from the paper. You, you said spring of 2021. Spring of 2021, like okay, so two years at least. Um, and in theory, they could have been around in a different, they could have manifested in a different way before then, and most likely they did. Um, but they are dedicated to uh, lookalike Fishing. What they mean, what I mean by that is they only use lookalike domains. They want to trick the human eye and they're not involved in kind of other generic sorts of, of, of uh, types of fishing. And so you might see them, for instance, they are really great fans of financial institutions. So they go after banks, taxes, two of their main categories. So for uh, Europe, the United States, Canada, and Australia, um, those are those are their main target sets, and they distribute information via SMS messages and probably via other via via other mechanisms as well. But we know, for instance, SMS messages. And in that case, they're going to have lookalikes to say um, Citibank or M&T Bank or Deutsche Bank is another uh, one of their favorites. Um, America First Credit Union is another favorite. They also will go after taxes like the US tax service or the Australian tax service. And they're gonna be lookalike domains, right? So they're, they're a small change in the domain from what it legitimately would be to uh, the one that they have registered. Sometimes when you look at it in, in retrospect, you'll say, that doesn't look like that at all. Um, but the problem is when you're actually, you know, as a user looking at these things, uh, it's, it's in small font, maybe at the bottom of a browser or in an SMS message, the message itself is very compelling and your eye just doesn't have the ability to quickly, um, say like, oh no, that's slightly off. Uh, and, and so you're more likely to click in through the message. Um, and that's what we mean by a lookalike in this particular case. Yeah, I uh, visited the Magic Castle in Los Angeles, which is, for those who aren't aware, uh, kind of like the, the the mecca for magicians that they love to go to. Um, and they share, you know, they have back rooms where they can share uh, certain techniques and secrets and stuff. And uh, I got invited there once years ago. And while I thought I was just you know, I have taken a break from the computer show that I'm there for, they started talking about how easy it is to deceive people because they are expecting to see certain things. And so even though there's a typo or there's something that it's, you know, in hindsight, it's a glaring red flag, but people won't see it because they're expecting to see, oh, I'm, I'm looking for information on the Australian IRS and uh, this is what it's called. And so I'm going to go to that site. Uh, and then they'll later realize that um, it's not even a misspelling, but um, I saw one in the U.S. where it was uh, IRSreturns-speedy.com. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, you know, the, the words are right, but 
the US IRS never created a domain like that. Um, so as long as it matches what you're looking for, um, yeah. Yeah, there's a combination of ones, right? So there's some things that are just a, a, a trick of the eye. So one of the more common ones I see is like words that have an ing in them, um, domains that would have an ing like, I don't know, serving, that's not the actual domain, but let's say that, or um, things like servers, words that that are like a plural, and, and they're part of the legitimate domain. If, if the domain is reasonably large and you flip two of those characters, your brain is just going to infer the correct thing. And, and you know, you do that as a natural process in order to be able to do reading comprehension. It's very hard for your brain to say, oh, something looks out of place unless it's, you know, really, really out of place. Um, but even other ones like where there's uh, dashes, we've seen a lot of um, attacks recently for multi-factor authentication type attacks with lookalike domains, for example. Um, those sometimes are run by infrastructure actors who are running kind of a, a large persistent case. And then sometimes they might be one-offs. Um, but in, in that case, from a lookalike perspective, they might say something like MFA dash uh, Citibank or, or, or something like that. And that's not a domain that Citibank would uh, did create or would create, but it has two things that you are naturally, you know, inclined to accept multi-factor authentication. That is my rock solid defense against hacking. And then Citibank, which is my bank. And you put those two together um, and you, you sort of ignore other aspects of it. And the actor is successful in those cases. Well, and you, um, in that white paper you mentioned on lookalikes, you mentioned Coinbase, who actually was breached that way, mm -hmm. using that kind of a, of a lookalike, Im imitating their multi-factor authentication provider and their company name. And it went through SMS, not through email. It's like they combined all those factors um, and were successful at uh, getting access to the, uh, that employee's account. Yeah, that... That definitely is a trend started about a year-ish ago, maybe 15 months ago at this point. Um, and there's a toolkit, probably multiple toolkits that are available on the internet, very cheap for actors to be able to do this at scale. Um, so they can create a lookalike domain and they can act in the middle. Um, so it's called adversary in the middle type technique for uh, MFA, you know, for multi-factor authentication and two-factor authentication, Okta, these would be the common words. And then they essentially are doing like a fatigue aspect. So I'm going to, I'm going to broadly distribute this, um, this domain, this attack. And for instance, if I go after, you know, Coinbase and I can go, I can send SMS messages to all of their employees. And most of them are not going to pay attention, but I really only I only need one or two or three. Um, so Coinbase is is not unique here. There's uh, attacks going against you know everyone that you can imagine for MFA attacks, and a lot of them have been successful from this from this fatigue aspect of it, um, where they're inundating people, and then eventually someone will be able will, someone will click into it. That's the kind of activity that we're seeing fairly regularly. And I said, it, it started, we really saw an uptick, like mm, February-ish of last year is when we started coming in and then starting in the summertime. And there is actually a, a reasonable amount of reporting, including reporting by Microsoft last summer um, that showed this 
this uh, attack, which kind of this this rise in this type of attack, which also corresponded with these uh, toolkits being available for sale. I want to go into an example, and I'm going to apologize to the audience. This is going to sound a little bit like a product uh, advertisement here, but it's because we have a rock solid example of the value of looking at infrastructure, uh, you know, malicious infrastructure, and, and why we wanted to talk about this today. Um, there was an example of the, the Vextrio network, Renee, that your team discovered um, and actually started blocking a year ago. Um, it'd been operating since two years ago. But even though we've started identifying and blocking it a year ago, it's still active um, and it's doing all these other things. We don't, you don't just block a domain. That's something else I want to make sure everybody understands. Um, you don't just say, oh, here's the, here's the domain name, so let's, let's block them because they use a massive uh, dictionary of, uh, of you know, domain generated algorithm uh, names. Um, this, is, this is a massive uh, attack and it's still active um, when it would have been a simple thing to just block the infrastructure, but everybody seems to be focused, most security tools seem to be focused on malware. I'm going to scan the file. I'll protect you against the file, but they change the files, but they distribute it through the same network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So these, these malvertising networks in particular, and we track a lot of them. We've just published on, uh, on, two Omnitor and, and um, Vextrio are two of the ones we've, we've published on. And they have similarities to each other, uh, but they also are quite different um, networks. They're operated, they're operated differently and their operating procedures are different. Um, even though they, they both use uh, browser plugins and compromised uh, WordPress sites for, for getting into systems. Um, so what, what is interesting about them is once they are in place, they can deliver anything they want. Uh, so the industry tends to have a habit of calling this nuisanceware or adware. Um, and the way I look at that is similar to when you have an ailment the doctors don't understand, they'll give it some generic uh, syndrome label, which means I don't know what it is. Um, so in our industry, if people are seeing um, a, a lot of activity, particularly if it's fairly common and it has an ad, <laughs> then we call it adware or nuisanceware. We might say it's potentially unwanted programs. And what we found is in reality, uh, these are not potentially unwanted. These are really unwanted. Once they have uh, successfully uh, compromised your machine by various reasons and getting you to agree, for example, to allow them to set up notifications, which then uh, enables that, that browser plugin, um, they can actually deliver anything they want. And we have seen Vextrio uh, deliver malware um, and Nozomi Networks uh, actually wrote a nice paper on in December on Gluptiba malware and how it was delivered. Um, that was delivered by Vextrio, even though Nozomi wasn't aware of it at the time. Um, we've seen them deliver uh, spear phishing. So when we say spear phishing here, we mean actually targeted to a specific set of users. So we've seen Vextrio be able to do that. We've seen them deliver information stealers and um, uh, other kinds, besides Gluptiba, information stealers and remote actions Trojans. And then of course, they also deliver ads and they can decide what to do based on who you are. 
So, you know, they're already in your network. They know who you are. They're on your, they're on your machine. They have varying degrees of uh, permissions on that machine, depending on the actual malware itself. And then they can decide, oh, should I actually deliver a malware here? Should I deliver a phishing email? Should I just deliver ads depending on, on where I am? So they're very complex. And if you just look at that as, oh, I'm going to block this domain or I'm going to block that domain because of how their infrastructures are set up and persist, um, you're just playing this you know, traditional whack-a-mole idea, right? You're getting one at a time versus the whole thing. Well, and that's a, that's a key point that I really want to make sure that everybody understands is because um, for the companies that that know uh, a little about what Infoblox does, um, DNS security, um, it's easy to equate it with just, oh, it's just a web filter and you're blocking, you know, URLs, you're just doing it at the DNS level. But there's a lot more out there because you actually on the Vextrio network in one of the reports I was reading, um, you talk about how there's a lot of the... The, the activity and the and the indicators that you just don't see outside of DNS. You can only see that, and it's not because you're looking at a, at a domain name. There's a lot more that you're actually able to observe at the DNS layer, right? Yeah, and I do think you're right that there is a, a common understanding, which I, I, I consider to be a somewhat misunderstanding, that you would use DNS for, for URL filtering. Um, in fact, I would advise that you never use DNS for URL filtering. Um, you really want to, if you really want to deal with URL filtering, you should use URL filtering systems. Um, DNS is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, it's a giant hammer um, that allows you to block uh, domains and IP addresses independent of everything, right? So independent of operating systems, independent of device, independent of the specific malware. So in the case of these malvertising networks, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, Glutiba or Lockbit or you know any name your favorite, uh, Emotet, ransomware, whatever it is uh, going on, we're going to block it at the domain and the IP level. So that's a very big stick to, to carry around. Um, and it also becomes a little bit, you know, dangerous. Uh, if you're only trying to do URL filtering, you're generally working in a like a much more fine-tuned uh, perspective than we would have for DNS. The great thing though, is because it is entirely independent of the device and independent of um, the malware and independent of the operating system, et cetera, uh, you can use it in a large enterprise um, and effectively block those attacks, regardless of whether, in, in the case of an enterprise, whether the employee is using um, a Mac or uh, whether it's on a server or whether they're using a Windows machine. Now, um, of course, the, the title of this was uh, Persistent uh, Infrastructure Actors. And uh, you just highlighted that, you know, big difference between Omnitour and Vextrio and how they use them and, and uh, you know, how they're managed and, the, and their processes that you, you're able to observe. Uh, they're, they're obviously different at that level. Um, and we also talked about how this goes far beyond just blocking a bunch of, of URLs or domains. Um, to highlight again how complex this is, I want to go back to OpenTangle just a little bit because mm -hmm. one of the ways you describe OpenTangle is that um, they, they are... Uh, it is a brazen actor with complex intertwined infrastructures. And that phrase intertwined infrastructures, that's something I wanted to uh, help everybody understand more about. 
Yeah. So I call them brazen is because uh, they are very spammy, right? So uh, if again, if you're in Western Europe, uh, Canada, United States, or Australia, there's a very good chance that you have seen open tangle uh, operations. Um, and you can check the spam folder of your SMS in your phone to see, um, but most likely you have. Brazen in that case is, for instance, they'll tell you that your Citibank account or your Wells Fargo or your M&T or whatever Deutsche Bank uh, account is locked, but you don't actually have a Deutsche Bank account. <laughs> so that's what I mean. They don't really care. They're just like spamming out. And, um, and then they use these kind of, uh, some of them are, some of them are well-designed look like domains, but some of them are just like not well-designed. You're kind of like, well, that doesn't look like M&T at all. Um, that's the term brazen. The other thing is though, that they are, you know, persistent. They've lasted for well over a year. In this case, they've lasted for over two years. And when I say that they're, we call them open tangle because the open part, they're like sending everything out. They don't seem to care if anyone detects them. But the tangle part is uh, when you look at DNS infrastructure, major components that you're going to look at are, you know, you're looking at DNS records, right? And you're looking at that, that DNS fingerprint or signatures, what we would use either of those terms of how something is operating. Uh, the aspects of that, as I mentioned earlier, might be to do with um, its name servers. It might be to do with its C name records, its canonical name records. It might have to do with its mail records, uh, with its um, pointer records, which are how you reverse from IPs back to domain names. So any of those DNS records in aggregate and how they are set up is what we would define uh, for a DNS fingerprint for an actor. And we combine all of these pieces together. Um, some of them are sort of self-evident, like a name server, and some of them are very um, complex in the exact uh, configurations for um, you know, an SOA record, right, in, 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 within the context of it. Um, and maybe how a text record is set up from a regex perspective even. So in the case of OpenTangle, um, there are a number of things within our fingerprint, but in particular, their name servers are um, fairly, you know, kind of intertwined with each other, but they do move them. And they will, they've migrated over different sets of name servers over time. Um, and then they, the domains, um, which is fairly frequent for any kind of infrastructure actor, uh, domains name servers may pop in and out of, you know, kind of benign, often cheap name servers that are abused um, or anonymous name servers. And so you can't naively create your fingerprint. You know, if you're going to create a fingerprint based on name servers, for example, you can't naively create the fingerprint based on name servers because regardless of the actor, whether it's OpenTangle or, or anyone else, there is a tendency for those to be incidentally connected to a bunch of other stuff, including a bunch of domains, which are not related to at all, via these abused, cheap, benign, anonymous um, name servers that are fairly more common and which may be abused, but they actually contain, you know, they actually contain a lot of legitimate traffic. So you, you just can't make that inference. And if you try to do it in a naive way, in the case of OpenTangle in particular, what you, what will end up happening is you'll end up with this 
<clears throat> giant tangly mess of, of name servers and domain names, which is where that second part of that name comes from. Well, I hope everybody was paying attention because during that last little bit there, you packed a lot in there. Um, and a lot of people, uh, even those have been in, uh, you know, computers for decades, um, if they haven't dug much into DNS, they may still have that, that belief that, oh, it's just, I send it a domain name, it gives me an IP address. That's all it is. But there are so many different record types and all of those, you, you listed a whole bunch there, are the kinds of things that can give you clues. And I'll go ahead and, and give you a little bit of brag here that um, your team, because of that in-depth understanding of DNS, um, you've been able to report that you're blocking 100% of all the open tangled domains, even though they're doing that moving around bit. Um, so definitely a congratulations on that. And I did want to highlight, because sometimes I'll get this question on the broadcast. People say, well, yeah, it doesn't matter about the domain. What if they just hard code the IP address? Well, you mentioned they keep having to move. They don't just move because they want to. They have to move because they get discovered and then they'll get blocked. And if they hard code stuff with an IP address, it doesn't move. Once that IP address is blocked, they'll never be able to work again and it's dead. So it, it's a very short life when they have malware or something like that with a hard coded IP address. And that's why they use these domains so that something like an open tangle and all that flexibility, that's what they get by using domains. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, there are things that use hard coded <clears throat> IP addresses, but it, it's really rare. It's a very small percentage of all of the um, attacks that we see across all of the spectrum of things that we look at. I think the numbers around 92% is sort of the estimates that, that um, various studies have made recently that will use the domain name system in some fashion or another. So they might have an initial uh, introduction through one way, but eventually they use they use DNS in order to to make connectivity. Um, and then that that signature aspect of things can be extraordinarily complex. So we also recently, uh, released um, the finding of a, of a toolkit we call Decoy Dog, and Decoy Dog is a uh, it's a specific uh, instance or a specific configuration of a rat, a remote access trojan called Puppy. Puppy is an open source rat that's been used by nation state actors predominantly. It's open source, but it's very complicated, undocumented code. And particularly the DNS portion of Puppy is not documented at all. Um, and so it's not for your average uh, open tangle type cyber criminal, frankly. <laughs> um, and what we have done to identify it as a toolkit is not just to say it's open tangle, sorry, not just to say it's Puppy, but that it's Puppy configured and deployed in a very specific way based on its DNS signature. And that DNS signature leverages a lot of different elements of the DNS um, uh, Q-type records, the different kinds of query type records that there are, and exactly how that actor has configured them, um, which is very rare. There's like 18 domains on the internet with that configuration. And um, it's not actually documented or part of the puppy source code at all. So it's how you connect an actor who's been persistent for a year through their DNS with a malware that you're able to identify. I'm really glad you got into decoy dog because I want to make sure we uh, touch base on that before we're done. And we are right at the, the wire here of time. Right. 
So you, you squeezed it in even without the prompting. So thanks for that. And there's uh, there's write-ups on decoy dogs. You guys have a blog out on it. Um, there's a lot more details and information available um, on the InfoBlock site if anybody wants to dig into that. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, yeah, we knew we had more than we could get through in, in the time allowed. Um, so uh, everybody check out the, the InfoBlock's blogs, thread advisories, and uh, there's a whole section of content produced by Renee's team uh, if you really want to get into the, the weeds of this. Um, and she mentioned a white paper or a report that was produced on lookalike domains that was just released at uh, the RSA conference. Very extensive report. So um, it's uh, definitely not your light reading, um, but it's also not going to uh, confuse uh, those who are just looking to understand the breadth and, uh, and, and the scope that uh, lookalikes involve today. It's not just uh, character replacement. Uh, any final comments, Renee, before we uh, say goodbye to everybody? Um, well, that lookalike paper also has a bunch of Easter eggs in it, which we're very proud of. It took a lot of work to get that done. So there's a good game aspect of it as well. And uh, hopefully it's really useful. There's a, a lot of energy that put in to try and make that very accessible. Um, our decoy dog paper is uh, pretty dense, uh, but hopefully is valuable to people who really want to dig in and, and understand uh, malware as well. All right. Well, thank you for being with us again, Renee. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of our viewers and listeners for your time as usual. And join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.